I encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be talking about the example of the suffering servant. Last week we talked about those of us as believers who suffer as servants. Those who are servants and have a master over us. Maybe an employer-employee relationship as we see in verses 18 through 20. And so we talked about suffering servants, those who are suffering for Christ's sake. But this morning we come to the example of the suffering servant, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll begin reading our text for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Follow along as I read our passage for us. Peter says this, For you have been called for this purpose, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Get behind me, Satan. None of us want to hear those words. And yet those were the words that our Savior said to Peter, who is the author, the one who is writing these words that you and I just read. And why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, to Peter? Well, Peter rebuked Jesus after Jesus told Peter and the other disciples that he was going to suffer. In fact, listen to what Mark tells us happened in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. It says, and while he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. He was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You see, Peter didn't have a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah in his theology. In his theology, he had a A Messiah who would come and rule and reign. He would conquer Rome. And he would establish his throne. He didn't have a suffering Messiah in his theology. But that was the plan of the Father for the Son. In fact, we read it earlier in Isaiah 53. It was prophesied that our Savior would suffer. And he did. And he has become an example to us that the Christian life is a life of suffering. And yet many Christians today have a similar thinking that Peter had when Peter rebuked Jesus. They don't have suffering in their Christianity. Why is that? Well, I believe that there have been many preachers in pulpits across America for decades now that have preached something that will tickle the ears of the people. Many of the health, wealth, prosperity preachers and seeker-sensitive preachers won't ever tell you that if you come to Christ, you will have suffering in your life. I won't tell you that. It's not popular. In fact, they'll tell you the opposite of that because they want to make you feel good, get you to come back, to stay in their churches. 
But if you tell people that if you come to Christ, you are going to have to repent of your sin, fight your sin daily, persevere in hardship, and even suffer for the name of Christ, well, it's not a very popular message. So these preachers will just tell you what you want to hear. They'll tickle your ears. But they won't tell you what you need to hear. They'll tell you the good stuff, but not the stuff that sounds bad. But we have to have a balance. Listen, is, is there a lot of good and positive stuff Truths found in the gospel call? Of course there is. You receive eternal life. You have your sins paid for and forgiven in the gospel. You get Christ's righteousness imputed to your account. You become a child of God as you're adopted into his family. You have the hope of a future of glorification And on it goes with all the things that we rejoice in when we think about the gospel call and salvation. There is great joy found in the gospel. But we also have to understand that in the gospel call, it means that we die to self. That we don't live for self. That we fight sin and turn from it daily. And that we strive after godliness, which takes work on our part, as we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And as Peter tells us here in our passage, being called by God means that we will go through suffering in this life. If you want to grow in godliness, get ready. You will suffer. In fact, that's what Peter says at the beginning of verse 21. We looked at this last week where he says, For you have been called for this purpose. For what purpose? To patiently endure suffering that you don't deserve. Not a very popular message, is it? And remember the context here. Peter is writing to Christian slaves who have masters who are treating them poorly. They are unreasonable masters who are causing suffering to these servants. And the suffering comes not because these servants are living in sin, but because they have a fear of God and are living for Christ. And when you and I live for Christ, the world hates that. They hate it. Listen, church, light and darkness, they don't mix. They don't mix. Truth and error can't stand together. So when we live in the light and stand for the truth, those who are in darkness don't like that. And what do they begin to do? They begin to persecute us. And we begin to suffer. In fact, listen to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be. They will be. And Paul knew this reality. Paul knew the reality of persecution. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, after Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra, left for dead... That's how bad it was for Paul. They dragged him out of the city and left him there thinking, he's dead. We finally got rid of the guy. He and Barnabas, God spares him, saves his life. He and Barnabas eventually make their way back to Lystra. He goes back to the very place that he was persecuted. He goes back there and listen to what he says to the church there And Lystra, he says this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Paul knew that living for Christ and being a part of the kingdom of God meant suffering. And we were going to suffer. Do you have a desire to live a godly life? If you answer yes to that, then get ready for persecution. In fact, Jesus even prepared his disciples for this when he told them in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. We're not greater than Christ. If Christ suffered, do we think we're greater? And that we will never suffer? He said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know the Father, and therefore they hate the Son. And if they persecuted Christ, Jesus tells us, they will also persecute us. This is part of living the Christian life. And as Peter eventually learned, persecution was the life of Christ. His life was a life of suffering. And he has become an example for us so that we might be able to find comfort when we encounter suffering in our own lives. And that's what Peter is showing for us here in our passage. As we look at this passage before us here in 1 Peter 2, we're going to see Christ as the suffering servant. He is the suffering servant. And we're going to see three elements of his suffering here. Three elements of Christ's suffering. The first element is that Christ suffered for our, or as our, supreme standard. Christ suffered as our supreme standard. Look again at the middle of verse 21. Notice what Peter says there. He says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now remember, these, these servants who are suffering are suffering for the name of Christ. Those that Peter are writing to here, they are suffering for the name of Christ. They're believers in Christ. They're living out the convictions in their own lives out of fear toward God and are suffering for it. But Peter now reminds his readers that suffering is not just something that you and I as followers have to endure, but that Christ also endured great suffering. And he has now become the model, the example, the standard for us to follow. Now within these, this verse, we see the vicarious or the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Notice what Peter says there to these believers. He says, Christ also suffered for you. Christ's suffering was for you, which means that Christ's suffering was not just some kind of general suffering that didn't apply to anyone. No, it was suffering that was done in our place. Christ suffered for us. For all who are born again, we have a Savior who suffered on our behalf. That word for in the Greek there is the word huper. Listen to what Ed Edmund Hebert says about this little preposition. I love prepositions. Prepositions are good. When you read your Bible, look for those prepositions. They're key. And listen to what he says about this little preposition. He says, the preposition huper, which can also be translated as over, in the context conveys the picture of Christ bending over the readers to shield them from danger and destruction. Isn't that a glorious picture? It's glorious. It's an amazing picture that is painted for us. It's what Christ did. He suffered for us. 
And it's amazing what Peter does here because even though none of us were there to see or experience Christ's suffering, Peter makes it personal to us. It's as if he's driving this home so that we would understand that our suffering is not something that only you and I experience. No, even our Savior experienced suffering, and he suffered for us. It wasn't just a a general type of suffering. It was a purposeful suffering that was done for each and every one of us who believe in Christ. And since Jesus experienced such suffering, his followers will experience the same. We see that in the last part of verse 21. Notice what he says there, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Not only did Jesus suffer and die, but in his suffering, he was giving us an example of what it means to suffer. Now that word example there means model or pattern to be copied in writing or drawing. The picture here is of this. Those of you that have children and you teach them how to write. You have a piece of paper and you draw the, the alphabet, the letters on there, and you tell them, now trace over that. You have set the pattern for them and their job, their duty is to trace over those letters. Or an artist with the the see-through tracing paper who traces the picture that's below it. Peter's telling us here, Christ is that pattern. That's the picture here. Christ is that pattern. He is the, the standard. He is the one who is to be traced out, to be emulated. As one commentator says, the example was not left merely to be admired, but to be followed line by line, feature by feature. You see, oftentimes we admire the suffering of Christ, but then we think somehow we don't deserve it. We're better than that. But what is Peter saying here? Don't think you're better than Christ. He suffered, and you know what's going to happen to you? You live for Christ, you'll suffer. We will endure suffering. But isn't suffering the way to glory? It is. Suffering is the way to glory. In fact, suffering in God's appointed is God's appointed means by which you and I receive the reward. And Christ modeled that for us. He had to suffer before he was exalted. We see this in Philippians 2, 8, 9. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, for what reason? For the reason that he suffered to the point of death, Death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The way to glory was through what? The cross. Through suffering. Christ modeled that for us. You see, when we suffer unjustly for Christ, we need to look to and remember Christ and what he endured in his suffering. We understand that that our suffering won't lead to anyone being saved like it did for Jesus. We get that. We understand that. But when we do suffer for Christ's sake, how will we respond? Will we respond like Christ did? Knowing that his suffering was the will of God and the way to glory and honor? It's not as if the Jews and the Romans got a hold of Jesus and God was going, oh no, what's going on? As we read earlier in Isaiah 53, it was God's plan all along. 
You see, sometimes suffering in our own lives is God's will for us. God wills that you and I would suffer. Why? Because it's a way to glory. Because it strengthens us. It grows us in our walk with Christ. And the amazing thing is, we don't suffer alone. We have someone who has suffered with us. We have an example. When suffering comes for Christ's sake, we must patiently endure it. As Peter says back up in verse 20, just as our Savior did and has become to us an example to follow after. Christ patiently endured the suffering of the cross. And if you ever think that you are being treated unjustly and you begin to run out of patience, well, Peter points us back to Christ and he says, remember Christ. Remember him. And he tells us of the supreme standard, that Christ is the supreme standard, the model for us to look at. And he shows us the standard by telling us all of the things that Jesus did not do. Notice what he says here in verse 22. He begins to tell us all of these things that Jesus did not do. In verse 22 he says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now notice if you're reading out of the the NAS, that verse there is in all caps, which means what? It's a quotation of the Old Testament. That Peter here is quoting something from the Old Testament. What is Peter quoting? He is quoting Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9. And he quotes Isaiah 53 and verse 9 with some minor adjustments here. Isaiah says, because he had done no violence. Peter says, who committed no sin. Isaiah used the word violence there to signify sin, but Peter used the word sin and tells us that Jesus committed no sin. The the point that Isaiah was making is that when he uses violence, he's saying Jesus committed no sin. Peter just says here, Jesus is one who committed no sin. Now, as Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, he knows that this passage is about the suffering servant. He knows that. And he uses Isaiah 53 as his base standard for telling us about Christ. And notice that he did not use his own experience. Peter didn't use his own experience. You see, Peter was in the garden when Jesus was arrested, right? Wasn't he there? What did he try to do? Cut off the guy's, tried to kill him. Good thing the guy moved and he got his ear. Peter was there at the the arrest of Christ in the garden. He even went to the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus was being tried. That was where Peter denied Jesus three times. And so Peter saw Christ go through some suffering. Was Peter at the cross? We don't know. He's never mentioned as being at the cross. There were some those, some of those that were off in a distance that were watching. Maybe he was a part of that crowd that was off watching. But we don't know whether he was at the cross or not. But the amazing thing here is, here is that Peter doesn't rely upon his own experiences. But he relies upon the sufficiency of God's word. And he tells us here, Jesus did not sin. Even though Jesus was suffering unjustly by the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Romans, there was never one act of sin that he committed in his suffering. Not once. That's how Christ reacted to unjust treatment. He never sinned. Then Peter tells us from Isaiah 53, 9, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Think about this. Think about this. 
how much of our sin comes from our mouth? Mm, just pierce some hearts. All of us. We're all in this together. How much of our sin comes from our mouth? A lot of it does. Jesus says, what's in your heart will come where? Out of your mouth. That's why James tells us that the tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Who can tame it? But not for Christ. Not only did Christ not sin in action, but he never sinned in his speech either. And think about this. Peter is quoting the prophet Isaiah, right? That's who he's quoting. He's quoting Isaiah. A man who knew about the sin of his own mouth. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6.5. He says this. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. The prophet Isaiah knew of the sin of the mouth that begins in the heart. And Isaiah goes on and tells us about Christ, <clears throat> the suffering servant, who never sinned with his lips. Neither with his actions nor with his lips. And then Peter tells us more about what Christ did not do in verse 23. Notice what Peter says there, verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. This has to do with the patient endurance of Christ during his suffering. Remember back in verse 20, Peter tells us that God is pleased when we patiently endure suffering. And now we see from Christ what that looks like. Peter tells us here that Christ was being reviled. That word reviled there it means mocking or abusive speech. This, this was hurled at Christ over and over again. It was a, it's a repeated action in the Greek. It's something that they continued to do again and again toward Christ. They reviled him again and again. They mocked him. They threw abusive speech at him. One commentator says revile implies an insulting, abusive attack prompted by anger or hatred. That was the Jewish people. As they're yelling what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Anger, hatred. They were reviling Christ. Mocking him. Throwing abusive speech at him. And this is how Christ was treated after he was arrested in the garden. Again and again, they tried to push Christ to his breaking point and get him to retaliate back against them. But listen, church, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Why? Because he didn't revile in return. In fact, we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Wow. The NIV translates this portion of verse 23 here in 1 Peter 2 this way. It says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not reta retaliate. When they hurled their insults, when they threw them at him, Jesus did not retaliate. He remained silent. And he patiently endured the suffering. what our Savior did. 
Then Peter tells us one more thing our Savior did not do in verse 23. Notice he says there, while suffering, he uttered no threats. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Everything that our Savior endured was completely unjust. Completely and totally unjust. And he could have opened his mouth and retaliated with all kinds of threats of hell and judgment and condemnation. But instead, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 23, 34. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus prayed for their forgiveness instead of seeking revenge. He uttered no threats, but he patiently endured the suffering. What an amazing Savior we have, right? He did not sin. He did not have deceit in his mouth. He did not revile in return. He did not utter threats. Instead, what did he do in his suffering? Look at the end of verse 23. Notice what Peter says there. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept getting his strength from the Father as he continually kept entrusting himself to the Father. That word entrusting there means to hand over to or to commit to. Jesus kept surrendering himself over to the Father, knowing that the Father would take care of him. And knowing that the Father would take care of them. Those who persecuted him. Those who reviled him. He knew that the Father would take care of them. Why? Because he knows that God is the righteous judge. God's the righteous judge. He knew that God would vindicate him. And the same is true of us when we are suffering unjustly for Christ's sake. God will vindicate us as well. He will make every wrong right in the end. He will. What is our job? Our job is to follow in his steps, in the steps of Christ, and not to return evil with evil, but to entrust ourselves to Christ who has become our example of what it means to patiently endure suffering. And so that is the first element of Christ's suffering. Christ suffered as our supreme standard. Second, a second element of Christ's suffering is that Christ suffered as our sinless substitute. He suffered as our sinless substitute. Look at verse 24. Notice what Peter says there. He says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now, Peter has already established in verse 22, quoting from Isaiah 53, that Christ was sinless, both in action and in speech, right? He suffered, he endured all of this, and not once did he ever, ever sin. There was no sin that was found in him. He's completely perfect. And as the perfect man... Peter continues with his focus on Isaiah 53 to show us what the suffering of our Savior accomplished. Peter highlights the fact that Christ, being the perfect man, is our substitute. What did he do? Peter tells us here, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is the glorious doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Church, this this doctrine is glorious. Notice what Peter says there. He says he bore our sins. Not his sins, because he had none. Christ wasn't paying for any of his sins. He was sinless. So what did he do? He bore our sins. 
And he paid the price for our sins that none of us could pay. One commentator says, if if my sins and my guilt are not transferred to him, if he did not take them upon himself, then surely they remain with me. If he did not deal with sins, I must face their consequences. If my penalty was not borne by him, it still hangs over me. But they don't hang over any believer. Our sins and the consequence of our sins, they don't hang over any of us who are born again. Why? Because he shielded us. Because he took our place. Because Christ died for the sins of all who would believe in him, he suffered the penalty for us. And on that cross, he took the wrath of God upon himself and took the full punishment for all who would repent of their sin and believe in Christ. He did that. And isn't that what we read earlier in Isaiah 53 and verse 4? Where Isaiah says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, not his own, but for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. We're healed because of what Christ has done for us. In fact, we we sung about this earlier. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. And I know that it is finished. He paid it all. He took my payment, my sin, upon himself. And he bore our sins in his body on that cross. Why? Why did Christ do that? Well, there's a purpose in Christ's suffering. Notice Peter says there in verse 24, so that, it's a purpose statement, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a purpose in all of his suffering. Peter here, he looks back at our conversion and he says, you are now dead to sin. Why? Because of anything you've done? No. (laughs) Because of our glorious Savior. Because of what he suffered. Because of the cross that he endured. Therefore now, you are dead to sin. That phrase there, might die, means to be cut off from, to have no part in, or to be separated from. Christ's death for our sin now separates us from the sin and the penalty of that sin so that we will never be condemned for them. You and I will never be condemned for sin. The sin that we committed. How do we know? Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're dead to sin. And the penalty of sin. And we are now able to live to righteousness. We now have the power by God's Spirit who lives within us to live righteous lives. That's the purpose in all of it. It's what we've been saved for. To die to sin and live to righteousness. 
And it's all possible because of the spiritual healing work of Christ. Notice what Peter says there at the end of verse 24. Peter says, for by his wounds you were healed. Now the word wounds here means to bruise. Uh, The bruise or bloody welt that results from a sharp blow to the flesh. But this is not referring specifically to the scourging and the beatings of Christ, but this is a way of saying all of the sufferings that brought about the death of Christ. All of the suffering that he went through brought about spiritual healing to those who believe in him. Some try to take this verse here, this healing here, to mean physical healing. That by his wounds you were healed, which means that as a Christian, you will always have physical healing. It's not true. Can God heal physically? Of course he can. Does he still do that? Yes, he does. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean we're always going to have physical health, the best physical health. I learned that this last week. Reminded of it again. Being sick. It's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual healing. Physical healing will come in the future when we're glorified. And all sin and death and sickness and disease, all of that will be done away with. That's in the future. But now we have spiritual healing. We have spiritual healing. And that's what Christ's suffering did for us. He is our sinless substitute who suffered so that you and I could be saved. And he did it for us. For us. Finally, there's a third element to Christ's suffering. And that is Christ suffered as our sovereign shepherd. Christ suffered as our sovereign shepherd. Look at verse 25. Notice what Peter says there. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Peter now explains how you and I as believers in Christ came to this spiritual healing in our lives. He says there, for you were continually straying like sheep. Again, this sounds just like Isaiah 53 in verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's where Peter's mind is. Peter's mind is on the suffering servant. Peter's mind is on Isaiah 53. Peter tells us here about our pre-conversion state, that we were all straying like sheep. Every one of us. Notice, he says, therefore, you were continually straying. Who's the you that he's talking about? Who would this be? It would be the slaves that are going through unjust suffering that Peter is writing to. He wants them to remember their condition before they were saved. Why? Why does he want them to remember this? Well, before they were saved, they didn't have the privilege of suffering unjustly for Christ's sake. Did you get that? Before they were saved, they did not have the privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. Why? Because they weren't in Christ. They would have never suffered for him. What were they doing? They were straying like sheep. They were living their life how they wanted to live their life. They were wandering sheep who were lost in the wilderness and had no way of getting back. In fact, it's true of sheep, of literal sheep. When they wander away from the flock, they don't know how to get back. They're completely helpless. That's why the shepherd has to go after them and go and get them because they don't know the way back. They're completely helpless. And that's the picture of every lost sinner. 
completely and totally helpless. And listen, church, that was us before we were saved. That was us before we were born again, before God saved us. We were completely helpless, like wandering sheep all alone. Having no way to save ourselves. Completely helpless. With zero concept or understanding of even having the privilege and the joy to suffer for Christ. It wasn't even in our minds that we would suffer for Christ because we weren't in Him. We didn't know Him. We didn't love Him. Completely lost. But Peter goes on. I love this. At the end of verse 25, notice what he says there. Now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That word return there is the Greek word epistrephate. And it means to change one's mind or course of action. As John MacArthur says, it carries the connotation of repentance, a turning from sin in faith, a turning toward Jesus Christ. Now, this word return does not mean that they were once saved and a part of the sheephold, but now they have come back. It's not what Peter's saying here. He isn't saying here, you were once a part of that sheepfold, that, that is, you were saved and a part of the sheepfold, and, and you wandered away, and now you're making your way back. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you were lost and, and all alone. You were a wandering sheep who was going on your own way. You were wandering from God, and you were headed in the wrong direction. But God has brought you back. God went and got you, and he is the one who brought you back. How do we know? I'll tell you how we know. In the Greek, that word return there is an aorist passive indicative. I know I'm getting geeky with you here, but it's important for us to know. It's an aorist passive indicative. What does a passive mean? It means the action is happening to me. I'm not doing the action. The action is happening to me. What is he saying here? It means that this was an action that was done to them at some point in their past. That returning was something that was done to you. You didn't return in and of yourself. No, God went and got you and he brought you back to him. That's what Peter is saying. That's what God is telling us here. That's why we must remember. Why am I saved? Not because of anything I've done. I couldn't even, I didn't even repent. Not in, not in and of myself. I had to be given the gift of repentance so that I might then respond in repentance. God had to do that work in my heart first. To make me alive so that I could respond in repentance and faith. God came and got me. I was the one who was lost. It's the shepherd who does the action here. He does it. God did it. One commentator says it emphasizes the divine initiative and the conversion process. Who took the initiative? God did. You realize that, church? Who took the initiative in your salvation? Not you. You would have never turned to God if God didn't come and do it first in your heart. He took the initiative. He saved you. God granted them repentance and they turned to the shepherd and guardian of their soul. Who is the shepherd? This is Christ. Christ is the shepherd. And that word guardian in the Greek is, is a word episkopos. It's the, in fact, it's the exact same word that Peter uses over in, in 1 Peter 5 where he talks about the elders there. The elders, the leaders, the rulers of the church. Episkopos. It means overseer or, or bishop. It's another word for an elder or leader in the church. 
And he's saying here, Christ is not only our shepherd who cares for us, but he's also our overseer, our leader, our ruler. As one commentator says, Peter reminds his readers that their ruler is not the emperor or slave owners, but Christ himself. He's the guardian. He's the sovereign one. He's our master. He's our ruler. And therefore, our lives are to be fully submitted to him, and we are to do whatever it is that he commands us to do without question. What is it, shepherd, guardian, that you want me to do? Yes, sir, I will do it. Yes, master, I will do it. And what is it that we're commanded to do? Peter's been telling us. We are to submit our lives, even in times of unjust suffering, and we are to patiently endure that suffering. Why? Because that finds favor with God. That finds favor with God. How do I know how to do this? God gave us the example. He gave us the model. He gave us the standard. It's Christ. How do I know how to patiently endure suffering, unjust suffering in my life? What must I do? Continue to look to who? To Christ. Keep my eyes fixed upon him. Church, we have an amazing, magnificent Savior that we serve. He's glorious. And in his suffering, he has become our supreme standard, our sinless substitute, and our sovereign shepherd. May we continually live our lives in submission to him and follow in his steps. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us on our own to try and figure all of this out. But you've given us your word, your sufficient word, your inerrant word, your supreme word that has all authority over our lives. Father, help us to be those who are living submissive lives, ready to endure, to patiently endure suffering in this life when it comes. Father, we know that suffering is not easy. Suffering is difficult. It's hard to go through. But we thank you for Christ, our Savior, who is our supreme standard, model for us, and what it means to patiently endure suffering in this life. Father, we know, as your word tells us, that even the suffering that we endured does not compare to the glory that is to be revealed. Father, we eagerly await that glory when our Savior will return to gather us to be home with you. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. But until that time comes, Father, help us to be faithful to you and to live out your word in our lives for your glory and your honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.